New York journalism in 1897 was in a pretty technicolor space. Newspapers, so long the grey, stolid medium of the merchants and businessmen, were instead being filled with lurid stories of murder, scandal and drunken debauchery, and the public were loving it. As papers fought for readers in the streets, sometimes quite literally, the stories that filled the pages and the methods utilised in order to write the stories grew more and more sensational by the day. It all came to something of a boiling point in the high temperatures of summer when a body washed up in the East River, carved up and lacking a head. The investigation that followed was carried out just as much by the journalists as it was the police, as the lines between who was who became increasingly blurred. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 18 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, as always. I hope this episode finds you well. Now that we're ploughing deep into November, I want to give a quick heads up. I I think in a funny sort of way, I don't really need to do this because, well, I'll explain in a moment, but we're moving rapidly towards the end of Season 5. And as always, the season is going to be capped off in December with the Christmas campfire episode, which is my absolute favourite episode of the year, hands down. So, yeah, I thought I'd put a a little sort of shout out, a little call to arms. Uh, If you want to have your story included in the Christmas campfire this year, uh, now's the time to start sending them in, really. Um, But any time between now and uh, I'll I'll kind of lay the deadline for, say, the 20th of December, um, there or thereabouts, if you can get them into me before then, that'd be amazing. The reason I say I almost feel like I don't need to do it is because people have been sending me their Christmas campfires stories all year since since like spring last year so or, or spring this year rather. So um, yeah, if you have sent your story in up to now, I probably haven't replied to you and that's because I, I just tend to, it's easier for me to organise the emails if I mark them as unread and, and unreplied to Um and and then I can kind of store them safely and, and know that I've got them kind of banked for when I was basically I sort of put them to one side for when I was going to do for when I was going to do the Christmas campfire. So um, yeah, if I ha- if you have sent it in before but you didn't get a reply, that that that's no worries. I, I I've acknowledged the email and I've just popped it basically into the folder for like right that's to look at in December. Um, so I will get back in touch with you and, and, and you're more than likely be included if you are worried and want to send it in to me again that's no problem you can do that go ahead um but yeah otherwise if you're not sure what i'm talking about um every year we do the christmas campfire where we do your spooky stories like your personal ghost stories your personal experiences things like that go back check out any of the other camp christmas campfire episodes there's one at the end of every season and you'll get an idea for what we're looking for like i say it's, it's by far the most fun episode for me 
of all season. I absolutely love it. So yeah, if you'd like to get your stories in, go for it. That'd be that'd be amazing. Um, so I just wanted to get that out there before the episode starts. Um, otherwise, let's crack on with it. This episode is called The Headless Torso Mystery and the New York Press. 19th century New York saw drastic changes in journalism as new forms of contents or papers spring into existence that focused on all levels of society. Once a medium for the wealthy merchants, publications like The Sun and various other one-penny papers paved the way for news that placed entertainment as the top priority. With the introduction of this new form of journalism came unprecedented growth as the readership grew from a select few thousand to the hundreds of thousands. In response, the number of daily newspapers in America grew more than tenfold in the space of 30 years, from just 24 in 1820 to 254 in 1850. It was a boom that saw huge gains across the spectrum, with large city dailies operating bustling headquarters, jam-packed with journalists, informants, typesetters and printers, with large newsrooms and even larger printing plants. On the flip side of that, you had amateur weeklies, printed by hand in the back rooms of private houses, ran by a single-digit workforce. The New York Tribune's headquarters stood nine storeys high and was one of the first buildings in the city to have an elevator service. However, this feat was quickly overshadowed when, in 1890, the New York World built its new headquarters and claimed the prize for the tallest building in the world. Situated by City Hall in the heart of New York, the building at 99 Park Row stood 309 feet high with a staggering 16 storeys, all capped off by a giant copper dome. The Sun lived next door to the world, its headquarters dwarfed by its rival, who it unsurprisingly called a large brass head tack. Along with the huge profit margins, growth and buildings came the editors of the papers, who had equally huge egos to match. The circulation wars throughout the 19th century were often so heated that it was fairly commonplace to hear stories of editors fighting in the street, throwing punches at one another over editorial rants, which were just as often laced with poisonous prose whose intention was little more than to damage the respectability of a rival paper. One of the most bitterly fought rivalries was between two of New York's most famous editors, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Pulitzer, a Hungarian-born immigrant, had wound up in the USA in 1864 after signing up to join the fighting in the Civil War. Coming from a wealthy background, he had grown up with all the trappings of wealth, such as servants and private tuition, until his father died, leaving the family with no money and no income. Seeking a way out of their rapidly encroaching poverty as soon as possible, Joseph signed up to travel to America. Upon his arrival, however, he discovered that his military recruiters were more or less operating a scam, and so he travelled to New York and joined a cavalry group largely made up of German immigrants instead and served in the fighting for eight months. After the war, he headed back to New York and quickly found himself jobless and homeless. Destitute, he hopped a boxcar to St. Louis, Missouri, where he bounced from job to job, began studying law, and eventually wound up writing for the local German-language newspaper, the Veslik Post. Writing the occasional story for the paper was all well and good, but Joseph had larger aspirations, and so he bought a washed-up rag in the St. Louis Dispatch and merged it with the St. Louis Post, creating the St. Louis Dispatch and Post. 
His journalism followed the populist trend with humanist stories and sensational headlines that the popular penny papers had successfully championed since the middle of the century. And in four years, he turned the dispatch and post around, raising the circulation from 4,000 to just over 23,000. In 1883, he moved back to New York, this time with a grander plan, and bought the New York world from its owner, Jay Gould, for $346,000. It was a lot to pay for a newspaper that, at the time, was bleeding out $40,000 annually. But Pulitzer had a plan, and he set to work bringing his style of sensationalist reporting to the big city and competing with the largest dailies. Within three months of his buying the paper, he had more than doubled the circulation to 40,000, and by the mid-1890s, was sitting pretty in a wood-panelled office set into the copper dome atop the largest building in the world and with a circulation just shy of half a million. Excluding the journal, it was equal to the city's four other largest papers combined. William Randolph Hearst hailed from quite a different background. Born in San Francisco in 1863, he was the son of a millionaire mining engineer and US senator. After being thrown out of Harvard in his third year, in 1887, he was entrusted with the control of the San Francisco Examiner, a newspaper that his father had received as repayment of a gambling debt. The paper excelled, but Hearst had a dream of a newspaper empire that spanned from coast to coast, and to do so, he knew he needed an arm in New York. After his father's death, his mother inherited the family's wealth, and so it was she that bankrolled Hearst's vision when he set out to New York in 1895 and bought the New York Morning Journal. It was a failing penny paper that was struggling to keep up in the fiercely competitive daily market. Hearst knew the competition well and knew that Pulitzer was the man to beat, and so he shaped the paper in the reflection of the New York world, poaching the paper's top three editors and forcing Pulitzer to drop the price of his paper from two cents to a penny in response to the journal's rocketing circulation figures that trailed just behind the world at around 320,000. It was the start of a long-running feud that would span several years and cost both editors considerably, financially and metaphorically, though it would eventually pay off for both men in the long run. In the short term, however, it was war, and the fighting would be fierce. Sunday the 26th of June, 1897, was just another humid, sweaty day in a long summer that had seen scorching temperatures suffocate the packed city of New York. In the long afternoons under the unforgiving sun, the slips by the docks on the East River became home to swarms of young boys who had spent their afternoons jumping from the creaking wooden jetties and swimming in the river. For the luckiest few, the occasional piece of dropped cargo or bundle of dumped stolen goods would make the banks of the cool water not only refreshing but profitable too. It was this thought that was racing through the minds of 13 and 14 year old James McKenna and Jack McGuire when their casual frivolities were interrupted by a bobbing parcel floating just off the jetty that they were currently lazing on, on the south side of the dock just off East 11th Street. The sight of dropped cargo was more familiar to the young boys than might be expected given the sheer volume of shipping that travelled up the river, but this package stuck out from the usual fare. Described as being about the size of a cushion, it was wrapped in what seemed to be a bright red and gold cloth. Swimming out to rescue the package and pull it to the shore, the boys struggled to heave the sodden parcel that soaking wet weighed over 30 pounds onto dry land. The cloth on the outside was a red, patterned oilcloth, 
a bit too fancy to be good, and it had been tightly wrapped in strong twine. Excitedly, the boys cut open the thin rope and unwrapped the outer covering, exposing a second and third layer of dirty burlap and brown paper. Plowing on, they continued to cut through the layers with a pocket knife, looking to expose their prize, when the blade sunk heavily into something solid and a deep red pool of water began seeping from the inside, all around their feet. Removing the knife blade with a sharp tug from whatever it was inside the package that it had lodged into, the blade came out a grisly crimson. Through the tears in the cloth and paper, a patch of pale white flesh could be seen, withered from its soaking in the water, pearlescent under the sunlight. Recognising the situation to have taken a somewhat dark turn, Jack tossed the knife aside and ran up the bank of the river in search of a patrolman, eyes wide and reeling. He hadn't travelled far when he bumped into Officer J.G. Moore, who called him for backup, and soon the East River was teeming with activity as police, detectives, the coroner and crowds of passerbys caught wind of the story unfolding on the jetty. The officers had unwrapped the macabre parcel after attaching a length of rope to it and hauling it up onto the jetty. Inside, they discovered a headless torso, hacked and carved, and bundled into the sheets of material. But despite this ghastly appearance, the police were not themselves particularly concerned, figuring it to be either a prank or a cast-off from one of the nearby medical schools. It wasn't until the coroner carted the body back to the Bellevue Morgue on 26th Street that the authorities felt any need to take the find too seriously, after the doctors had cast their expert eye over the remains. This was not done by students. A saw, and not a knife, was used to sever the head and the body. The entire breast, too, has been cut away. No medical student would do that. The body had been cut in two at the base of the breastbone, and the flesh there, as the neck, showed the jagged edges made by the saw. Neither the heart nor the lungs had been disturbed. The arms showed little muscular development, whilst the hands were white and soft, and it was apparent that the dead man had not been accustomed to manual labour. The morticians at the Bellevue would certainly have been familiar with the handiwork of the local medical schools. A little too familiar, in fact, and talk of their practices was more than a little close to home. Six months earlier, in January of 1897, Bellevue had been wrapped up in a scandal when it was discovered that the previous director, Albert White, had been shipping out bodies to the doctors for their lectures at $6 a throw. White had figured the medical school was a more profitable fate for the bodies than an empty trench on Hart Island, a usual fate for an unclaimed stiff, but the authorities had, strangely, not seen his side. The doctors were naturally completely shocked to find out the truth that the transactions weren't totally above board and threw the mortuary staff under the bus during the trial at the first opportunity. The torso that had washed up in the parcel that afternoon was in no condition to be sold for medical purposes at all though it did have several strange characteristics that were making it stand out from the rows of bodies, aside from being decapitated and lacking any lower half. The flesh cut away from the chest seemed to everyone who examined it to have been deliberate, leading the police to suggest that it had been perhaps to remove a tattoo, whilst much was made of how soft the man's hands had been. A working-class male of that age would have ordinarily been a labourer or craftsman of some kind, at least someone commonly working with his hands, so the remains were potentially those of someone of a much higher class, which always made for a good story. However, if that was the case, then why hadn't he been reported as missing? 
The well-off rarely disappeared quietly, though the body had not been in the water long, less than 24 hours, and perhaps as low as 10 hours, Dr. George Dow, the city's chief medical examiner, had concluded. Measuring the arms and the hands, the doctors estimated that when alive and in one piece, the man would have stood about 5 foot 11 tall and weighing in the region of 190 pounds. But unfortunately for the police, this description didn't fit a single reported missing person case. The body, it seemed, was a mystery, and it was about to get deeper when the following day, a man, Julius Mayer, out picking berries with his two young sons, Edgar and Herbert, in a densely wooded area by the Harlem River, eight miles from the East River jetty, stumbled upon a bundle of linen that contained the legs of the mutilated body, discarded by the roadside in a ditch next to the railroad tracks that ran alongside the river. It was the appearance of the same oilcloth that provided the most excitement, as it meant one of two things. If the legs fit the torso, then the mystery deepened. If it was a separate body, then it meant that in all likelihood it had been the same killer. Either way, the story could only grow in stature for the press. The ownership was promptly confirmed back at Bellevue when the two pieces were slotted together like a puzzle, matching perfectly. On Monday the 28th, the world, who, like several other papers, has had their reporters attend the medical examination of the body, slapped the story on the front page, with the headlines spanning the top. The fragments of a body make a mystery, and included a life-size sketch of the body's right hand as well as the floral and geometric pattern of the red and gold oilcloth that had been copied from a sample that the newspaper had somehow secured from the evidence. A man of the middle or better class has evidently been brutally killed, many stab wounds and bruises, portions of the body which may have contained marks of identification cut away. The police are yet entirely at sea. And it was true, the police really were at sea, at least as far as the newspapers were concerned. In public, they were still discussing it as a cast-off from a medical school. But later, they'd claimed that it was all a fraud, designed to keep excitement for the case low and prevent the newspaper reporters from trampling on the police investigation. Not that it was proven particularly effective. In the battle between the newspapers, the juicy details of a mysterious murder were incredibly valuable and a solid scoop could make or break the circulation skirmish of the day. Frequently, simple laws concerning the treatment of evidence, witnesses, or information flew right out of the window, as journalists of both the world and the journal were perfectly happy to steal away a key item from a crime scene, conceal and shield a witness, or even arrest a suspect in order to extort a confession, provided that it meant that it would be them that would get to break the story. An added bonus for the papers lie in the fact that if they made any mistakes, they could always pay their way out, a luxury the police didn't have that made for a spectacular display of double standards, when the papers would lampoon the police for their errors, which always made for a popular bit of copy. Already in the Torso case, the world had printed headlines calling out the police for being slow to act and spending hours in masterful inactivity. This situation made for a somewhat unique relationship between the police and the press, whereby they were both bitter rivals and valuable allies. Information between the two factions that traded freely on one day could just as likely be cunningly obscured the next, and every aspect of an investigation would slip under a veil of competition. In truth, further investigation of the body in the morgue had fairly confidently ruled out medical school tomfoolery to all parties involved. 
when two stab wounds were discovered in the chest, along with other details, like it being covered in defensive bruises, the lack of any preservative found, or that all the organs were in one piece and in situ. Equally true, however, was that the detectives were trailing behind the journalists, who had already attempted to track the oilcloth with some success. When detectives were directed to one Mr Henry Feuerstein, a Hungarian textiles dealer, he had already told a group of journalists all he knew, and was happy to repeat the same to the police. The oilcloth in question had been an unpopular pattern, he said, Diamond B number 3220, manufactured by A.F. Buchanan and Sons. He had distributed over 6,000 yards of it in total across 50 stores in New York between June and December of the previous year. Any cloth sold now would have been picked up from the bargain bin as cheap leftover stock. The newspapers were ahead too on the identification of the body. At least, they were doing a good job at throwing out their numerous theories. Is it Max Weinick? asked the world in one headline. Weinick was a 34-year-old scrap metal dealer who had been missing for over a month and the answer to the world's question was a fairly confident no, being that his wife had already given a negative identification of the body at the morgue. But why let accuracy get in the way of an intriguing headline, right? They were also happy to throw out their suspects on who the murderer might be, comparing it to the mafia hits, and pointing out that it absolutely must have been done via foreigner. After all, in the history of the country, all violent crimes, the paper said, were carried out by foreigners, usually those coming from warmer climates. It was reporting from the very heart of William Randolph Hearst, who in his own words had once stated, the public likes entertainment better than it likes information. In short, almost all leads on everything about the body, from the killer to the method, the motive and the victim's ID, was based on pure speculation, and without a head, it had begun to look as if it might stay that way. As every day passed, there would be handfuls of positive and negative IDs of the body, and the police would have to follow up each and every one, but none were leading them anywhere. In the hunt for a solid lead, the world decided that it was time to step up the game, and offered a $500 reward in the interest of justice for anyone who could offer the correct solution. Entries had to be exclusive to the world, and sent into their offices with the envelope marked Murder Mystery. Upon discovering this play, William Randolph Hearst hit back with the offer of a $1,000 reward for just the same. There was one reporter, however, that was hard at work tracking the one piece of solid evidence that the case had, the red and gold oilcloth. Ned Brown had joined the world earlier that year during the summer break of the Bellevue Medical School, which he attended and had just finished his first year. Ned worked the evening shift and spent most of his time cruising saloons and the Turkish baths, hoping to nose out something of interest. As both a medical student and a journalist, the torso mystery had struck Ned from the outset when he had first read about it in the evening papers that Sunday. Like most others, Ned put no stock at all in the theory that it had anything to do with the medical schools, and given that he was attending one, he would have known. But Ned noticed something else about the body too. The man's hands had struck him just as they had the doctors and journalists before, but Ned thought he recognised something about the condition and softness of the skin that was particular to one very specific occupation in the city. Heading out, he made his way to the Turkish baths that he frequented so often after a long night, with his ear to the ground and his hand on a drink or two, to inquire if any of the masseurs had gone missing recently. The Murray Hill baths, situated on West 42nd Street between Broadway and 6th Avenue, was a large, five-storey, ornately decorated establishment, 
all ceramic tiles, marble mosaics and hardwood panelling. Open all night, the baths were a peculiar mix of upright opulence and drunken debauchery, catering to a reasonably well-to-do clientele who valued privacy and a place to wind down after a hard night drinking. Ned knew the kinds of stories that floated around the masseurs, acquainted as they were to their drunken clients' rambles, and, in the past, it had always been a profitable endeavour to while away a few hours in the dead of night, relaxing and asking a few keenly worded questions. On this occasion, however, it was the staff itself he was interested in, and he soon found out that a man named William Guldensuper, a reasonably tall German immigrant worker and ex-sailor, had walked out of the baths after a shift on Friday morning, boasting that he was heading up to Long Island to purchase some property with his mistress and had not returned for the entire weekend. Like any good sailor, he had been something of a ladies' man and he had a large tattoo on his chest. It was curious enough for Ned, who went back to the offices of the world, withdrew $10 for expenses and spent $6 on two boxes of Cotaspam luxury soap. Filling up a suitcase, he disguised himself as a door-to-door salesman and headed over to Golden Super's apartment complex on Ninth Avenue, his excitement rising with each person he asked, confirming that they hadn't even seen Golden Super for several days, though he learned that he had been living with his landlady in apartment 439, one Augusta Knack, a well-off midwife well-known in the area. When he came to the door of 439 and saw the plaque, Augusta Knack, licensed midwife, he gave it a tentative knock. Standing five foot six inch tall and weighing about 200 pounds, Mrs. Knack swung open the door and greeted the journalist, come salesman. Ned's plan had been quite ingenious. Earlier that day, he had visited all the apartments in the building, dropping off bars of soap to all of the occupants and asked them to give it a trial and to let him know what they thought of it upon his return that evening. During his morning rounds, however, he had intentionally skipped over Mrs. Knack's residence. Feeling aggrieved to not have been the recipient of any luxury soap, Mrs. Knack was more than willing to allow Ned inside her apartment whilst he waited as she tested it out now for him. As she lathered her hands up in the back rooms of the apartment, Ned took in the decor, or more accurately, the lack of decor. Mrs. Knack's possessions were all in the process of being boxed up, either for storage or a big move, but on the side unit, he took in a photograph of a tall blonde man who he was sure that he had seen before. Snatching the photograph up and pocketing it before Mrs. Knack's return, he sat back down and attempted to look perfectly innocent. When she returned, Ned thanked the midwife for her time and thoughts on the soap and said his goodbyes, hoping to get out of the apartment before she noticed the missing photograph. Later that day, seemingly always one step behind the press, the police also paid a visit to Mrs. Knack. Earlier that day, a slew of Turkish bath workers had positively ID'd the headless body in the morgue as William Gordonsipper, and it had come to light that he had not only been boarding with the Knacks, but that he had been having an affair with Augusta. The police had arrested Herman Knack, now working as a bakery delivery driver in the city, but found out quickly during questioning that the couple had separated two years previously, and Herman had not much cared who his wife had been recently seeing. They had married in 1883 in Lauenburg, Germany, before coming to America, but once they had made the move, things had been difficult for the couple, and Augusta had begun seeing other people behind Herman's back. Herman's alibis, that he had been at work and then drinking heavily in a saloon throughout the entire window for the murder, checked out, and Herman was released. 
When they had visited Augusta in the afternoon, Detectives Crouch, Price and O'Donoghue found immediate suspicion once they found all of her possessions boxed up and ready to be removed from the apartment. During their initial questioning, they discovered Augusta was intending to return to Germany in rather a rush, but also that Augusta was a proficient liar. She had assured the detectives that she had not seen William since the previous Friday when he had asked to borrow $50 from Mrs. Knack and the couple had fought over him keeping another woman after which he had stormed out and she had supposedly not seen him since though his new lover had dropped round to collect his clothing, she said. Unfortunately for Mrs. Knack, the detectives already knew that all that she had been saying was false and so she became the best suspect they had and promptly arrested her taking her down to the station for further questioning. The following day, Thursday the 1st of July, the world ran a full-length sketch of the stolen photograph, front and centre of its first page, with the headline, The Murder Mystery is a Mystery Still. The photo showed Gordon Stupor standing in a long trench coat, holding a hat in his left hand and leaning against an ornate chair with his right, a sharp side part in his hair and wax moustache. As much as the paper was pushing the point, however, the mystery was slowly unravelling, at least as far as the police were concerned. Since arresting Augustanak, they had managed to tie a string of circumstantial evidence upon her, including the revelation that she looked a bit like a woman who had bought a length of the incriminating oilcloth from a hardware store three days before the murder had taken place. Slightly more damning, was his discovery of a saw and butcher's knife stashed away in a cupboard in Mrs. Knack's apartment, both of which were stained with what appeared to the detectives to be blood. In order to confirm that, however, they would have to be sent away for chemical analysis before anyone could be certain. The press were not so sure that any of the circumstantial evidence really mattered. Gordon Zuper had been positively identified by ten of his colleagues from the Turkish Bath but without a head, that could not be relied upon, and further, they picked apart Mrs. Knack's arrest, stating that she had no motive to have killed Gordon Super, and furthermore, throughout questioning, she had been adamant that he would turn up alive. Described as a strong and determined character, she was seemingly undisturbed about the allegations against her, and most fearful of the effect that the arrest would have upon her reputation as a trustworthy midwife. In a spectacular act of undermining the police investigation, the papers printed their misgivings openly, calling out the fact that Mrs. Knack was not being kept in a proper cell on account of the weakness of evidence against her and relaying the information that some of the detectives held little faith that they had the right person and that with a good lawyer, they were sure she would secure a release within 24 hours. More confident was Pulitzer's The Journal, who was by now claiming to have solved the case after it had been journal reporters who had uncovered the woman who had recognised Mrs. Knack as the buyer of the oilcloth. In a bold statement, they triumphantly claimed, Mrs. Knack, murderess. The journal had taken it upon itself to make inquiries to Mrs. Knack's old landlord. If she had planned to move out, then surely her apartment was now vacant. And if that was the case, then surely they could rent it out. By renting the place, the paper secured the ability for its journalists to come and go and spend as much time as they liked scouring the place for further evidence. Hearst placed a watch on the apartment block's door 24-7 and naturally turned away all other journalists, not on the journal's payroll. The police, of course, were ushered in with a clenched smile. The world shot back by hiring Emmanuel Friend, one of New York's most prominent criminal lawyers, 
in order to undermine the journal's headlines with awkward questions about the veracity of a positive identification made without any head. In fact, the world needn't have been so concerned about the apartment. It was all well and good as a marketing stunt, but there were little to be found inside in regards to further evidence. Mrs Knack had washed the entire place in preparation for her moving out, and all of her clothes and possessions were neatly packed away in boxes, perfectly clean. There was a curious telegram, signed by Gordon Super, received by Mrs Knack on Sunday, two days after that he had supposedly been murdered. However, the spelling of his name was not how he personally wrote it. The problem with that was, his name was a matter of contention anyway, with it being spelt in at least four different ways by various different friends, papers, colleagues and bosses. The case needed something solid. The case needed the head. It was to some disappointment then, that it was only to be the legs that would show up next, floating in the East River where they had drifted along the current to Cobb Dock, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and nestled themselves amongst the boats. Unsurprisingly, they didn't go very far in confirming the man's identity, nor incriminating Mrs Knack any further. Detectives even showed the freshly found legs to Mrs Knack in the hopes that she might be shook into some sort of confession, but it was to no avail. Augusta remained quiet and stuck to her story that Gordon Super had been her lodger for 18 months, after which she had split from her husband and took up with him. She had last seen him on Friday afternoon after a row and had not seen him since though she was convinced he was still alive. She had no hope, however, that they would be getting back together, hence the reason for her hurried decision to return to Germany. With both her husband and lover's relationships in the toilet, she thought that there was little left in America for her anymore and hoped to return to Germany to take care of her ailing mother. It was later that day when things started opening up a little more for the police. An undertaker nearby to Mrs Knack's home had confirmed that a horse and car had been rented under the name of Augusta Knack on Saturday morning, but it had been collected by a man calling himself Fred. When asked about the area, it seemed that Fred was another German lodger of Knack's, a barber who had followed a similar trajectory to Gordon Super himself by renting a room and then becoming involved with Mrs Knack. The rumours were that the two men, Gordon Super and Fred, had even come to blows over their relationship with the complicated landlady, winding up with Fred threatening Gordon Super with a pistol. It was flimsy, but at least it was a motive, and all efforts from the police switched to finding the mystery German lodger, whilst the journal and the world battled it out finding witnesses who would give either a negative or positive ID of Gordon Super, depending on their stance. The journalists for the world were having a fantastic time, printing headlines like, The Witches of Fate hourly add new elements to the strange mess in the Kettler police headquarters. As circumstantial as all the evidence against Augusta Nack was, it did seem to be mounting up, and she was certainly acting the part of a criminal by continuously lying. When the undertaker came into her prison cell in order to positively identify her as the person who had rented the horse and cart, she denied having ever seen the man before, despite the fact that he had lived next door and been an acquaintance for over ten years and had even buried one of her children in the past. As more witnesses from around Mrs Knack were interviewed in hopes of finding Fred, some pretty dark rumours began circulating too. Officially working as a midwife, it seemed Augusta Knack was fairly well known in the area as something of a fixer for women who had found themselves with an unwanted pregnancy. It was an unsurprising revelation for many. In 19th century New York, the term midwife and abortionist were more or less synonymous, 
and despite the criminalization of abortion, it was an accepted and fairly open secret that women were utilizing a robust underground network of midwives, pharmacists and physicians in order to carry out the practice. It was during an interview with Sophie Miller, a young girl who had worked with the Knacks in the past and had known the family for over 10 years, that the vital information came to the police. Fred, it turned out, was actually named Martin Thorne and he was a German barber. Immediately, detectives fanned out across the city, stepping into the various barbers for a cut and shave and hopefully an inkling as to who the mystery man was. They soon found out that Thorne had been working in a barber shop on 47th and 6th Street named Vogels. Was working, however, was the key term, as he had mysteriously stopped showing up for work since the previous week when he had suddenly quit, claiming that he was moving up to Long Island with his mistress, who was going to purchase a place for them to live and set up their own barber shop. A bit of a ladies' man, Thorne had a reputation for seeking out wealthy widows, and it seems Mrs. Knack had been his next target, and if his boasting about the Long Island property was true, it had been a target that had paid off. More details came to the front about their relationship too. Thorne had been seeing Augusta Knack behind William Gouldensuper's back whilst lodging with the couple, at least until one of Augusta's suspenders was found in his room and Gouldensuper threw him out. At the time, the pair had fought and Thorne had threatened Gouldensuper with a pistol, even pulling the trigger, and only failed to shoot him because the gun had stuck and refused to fire. After the fight, he grumbled to his colleagues about stabbing him next time instead and even began inquiring about where he could buy a stiletto blade from, or the effects and availability of chloroform and various other poisons. It was yet more circumstantial evidence for the police to move on, but at least a clearer motive had begun to form. Mrs Knack and Martin Thorne had plenty of reasons now to remove William Gordonsuper from the picture, assuming the body was William at all. The journal may have rented Mrs Knack's apartment, but it was the world that rented the horse and cart from the undertaker, which they renamed the Death Cart, riding it through the streets of New York, asking if anyone recognised it. In a remarkable turnabout face, the world was now not only on board with the police and the journal in claiming the primary suspects to be Mrs Knack and Martin Thorne, they were actually taking all the credit for solving the case. How the world did it, the story of how world reporters, bit by bit, unravelled the skein and cleared away the mystery of the crime. The paper claimed to have found a campsite in New Jersey that bore the ashes of a bundle of burnt clothing and witnesses that remembered seeing the horse and cart in the area. It was all so simple, apparently. In truth, the paper wasn't too far off the real revelations going on in the case. Mrs Braun, who had rented out a home in Woodside, Long Island, to Martin Thorne and Augusta Knack, had contacted the police after seeing their images in the newspaper. The house was a small wooden frame building on 2nd Street, the first of a small row of three houses flanked by a dairy and open fields. Suspicion had been alerted upon the house thanks to nothing less than a flock of ducks owned by local man Henry Wall. His ducks had found a filthy puddle of water pooling from an overflow that had come from the same house that had been rented to Augusta Knack and Martin Thorne. Despite it seemingly being vacated, it was as though someone had left a tap running for the entire weekend. What's more, the water that had pooled in the muddy field was a deep, dark red colour and threw up a rancid stench. With a renewed interest on the comings and goings of the house, the police found out from Mrs Braun that Thorne and Knack had rented the house on a year's lease, had paid for the first month, but had barely been there at all, after a few visits the previous weekend. 
Mrs. Braun let the police into the house and the detectives scoured for clues. In the fireplace in the downstairs lounge were a pile of ashes, partially covering the smouldering remains of a man's shoe, and upstairs, in the bathroom, several dark stains were found worked into the wooden floor, though the rest of the room was apparently spotless. Pulling the plumbing apart, a handful of crimson sludge was pulled from the drain from the bath, and that, along with some wood chips taken from the stained floor, was sent to Dr. Rudolf Withams, who worked at the New York University as a professor of chemistry and toxicology. When they questioned the locals, several said that they had seen Mrs. Knack going into the house, and several claimed that they had seen at least two different men enter at different points over the weekend. Mrs. Braun had not found it particularly strange until the police interest, due to a letter that she had received from Martin Thorne, explaining that they would not be moving in for another ten days due to sickness in the family. The letter was written in the same hand as several letters from Mrs. Knack's apartment that had been signed by Martin Thorne, and perhaps, with some relief, the police noted that the letter had been postmarked only one day prior, which meant that Thorne had at least not escaped the country yet. Reporters from the world, never far behind the police and often in front, had pulled up their own pieces of the floorboard from the bathroom the day before and sent them to an independent chemist at Fraser & Co named Dr E. E. Smith, who promptly confirmed the stains to be blood, long before the police had their own results. The following day, they printed another bold headline, Mrs Knack's Confession, though the first line of the actual piece told a slightly different story. The events of yesterday in the murder mystery involved what virtually amounts to a confession of the part of Mrs Knack. Her admissions leave but one inference, which is that if she did not actually participate in the butchery, she at least had a guilty complicity in it. That the barber, Martin Thorne, is her confederate, and probably the actual murderer, is circumstantially established almost beyond question. Circumstantially established a problem the police were having throughout the investigation, though it was true that now almost everyone was quite sure that Knack and Thorne had, in some capacity, each been the perpetrator of the murder, and that the victim was indeed Gordon Super. Despite now having evidence that Thorne was still in New York, the police fed the line to the press that he had escaped the country already, hoping to catch him off guard. The world happily printed bold headlines about how their men were hot on his tail in Canada, with express instructions to arrest the man on sight. Thorne, however, was nowhere near Canada. He was, as the police believed, still in New York, and whilst the press were waiting for word from their men in Canada and the police were scouring the streets, Thorne was stepping out of his hotel room and into his old barber shop, looking for a shave, a haircut and an old friend. The first week of July had seen an influx of sightings of Thorne, both in and outside of New York and even America, almost every single one being the product of an overactive imagination. There was one, however, that was more reliable and contained far more substance than the rest. John Gotter was a barber working in the city and familiar with Thorne, having worked with him for several years past. As the world journalists were contacting their men in Canada and the police were scouring the streets, ports and docks of New York, Thorne walked out of his cheap hotel and headed to a barber shop for a haircut. He'd already shaved off his moustache, but he needed to see his old friend to do the rest. John Gotter worked at a small barber shop on 8th Avenue. He'd been following the headless murder mystery in the papers 
So when Martin Thorne opened the door and sat down in his chair, his shock was all the more apparent. Thorne had Gotter cut his hair short and then asked him to go drinking with him. He had something he needed to tell him, he said, and Gotter, not wanting to say no to a suspected murderer, took him up on the offer. The two men sat in a quiet backstreet saloon drinking together for three hours whilst Thorne told Gotter the whole story. Largely speaking, the papers had been right, Thorne told him, but for his part, he was far more innocent in the ordeal. It had all been Augusta Knack, he said. It was her who had come up with the idea to remove Gouldensipper from their lives in order that they start a new chapter together in Long Island. Augusta had grown weary of him, and Thorne already hated the man anyway. Augusta would buy a house for the couple, and Thorne could open a barber shop there, she said. Augusta was a well-off lady, after all. She had been making good money from the hundreds of illegal abortions that she had been carrying out over the years, he told him. Thinking the house on Woodside to be far enough out of the way, they rented it with the express idea to use it as a venue for the murder. Augusta had bought the oilcloth and rope to tie up the body parts whilst he had gone into the house and hidden himself in the wardrobe of the upstairs bedroom. Mrs Knack came later with Golden Supper, pulling up outside in the rented horse and cart, and she invited him into the house and upstairs to the bedroom. As they stepped into the room, Thorne stepped out of hiding, firing his pistol and shooting Golden Super point-blank in the face. Amazingly, Golden Super survived the shot, but he wouldn't remain alive for long. Thorne dragged him into the bathroom, heaved his body into the bathtub and slit his throat with a razor, practically severing his head. Running the water in the tub to wash the blood away, Thorne set about cutting up Golden Super's body, finishing the job on the head, slicing off the tattoo on his chest and carving up the arms, legs, and finally sawed the trunk in half. He mixed up a bag of plaster of Paris in the sink and dropped the head in, allowing it to set into a solid, heavy lump, perfect for dropping into the river. Once the body was all wrapped up and ready to go, Thorne washed down the bathroom as best he could and loaded the parts into the horse and cart, and the couple discarded the macabre packages around the city, tossing the majority into the East River off the back of the 10th Street Ferry. If Thorne had any regrets about what he had done, it was that he had failed to weight the arms and legs properly, allowing them to float along the current of the river straight to their discovery. He later pawned Golden Super's watch and clothes and used the money to rent a cheap hotel in the city in an attempt to lay low, but going to hiding was a lonely business, made all the more difficult with guilt lying heavy on the mind. Before the pair parted that night, Thorne arranged to meet with Gotter once more the following evening. Gotter had agreed to meet Thorne the next day, but secretly he was terrified. Thorne had no reason to meet him the next night unless it was to keep him quiet. In telling him everything, Thorne may have taken a weight off his chest, but he had simultaneously produced a problem that needed solving. Gotter knew that he was far too much of a threat to Thorne, walking free every day with the information that he now held. Unsure of what to do with the situation, nor all the new information and fearful for his life, he told his wife the whole story, who wasted no time in going straight to the police. At 9pm the following day, July the 6th, Martin Thorne strolled down 8th Street and into Spears' drugstore, wearing a soft felt hat and black suit, cleanly shaven and neatly cropped hair. He blended in well enough with the crowd of evening shoppers, but unfortunately for Thorne, many of them were not shoppers at all, Rather, they were journalists and detectives in plain clothes, waiting for the moment of Thorne's arrival. Following the tip-off from Gotter's wife, 
John Gotter had been picked up by the police and recounted his story, including the fear he had for his meeting the following day. The detectives set up a sting, promising Gotter that they would arrest him at the same time as Thorne to conceal his involvement in the deception. Now, the detectives had men dotted all over the street, two on the street corner, two in the station opposite the drugstore, awaiting his arrival. As soon as he made his appearance known, Detective O'Brien pounced, pushed him up against the cigar counter and made his arrest. The mysterious Martin Thorne, all five foot six of him, was finally in police custody. But now the real hard work was to begin, because the police somehow had to make sense of the whole affair, tie the case onto Thorne and Knack, and then convince a jury that they had the right people, all the while, still without having a head for the victim. After all their self-congratulatory bluster in the previous weeks, the newspapers were surprisingly quiet concerning the arrest of Thorne. The world relegated the story to the third page for the first time since it had started its serialisation of the events, with the front page given over to the stories of the intense heat which had been causing waves of heat strokes across the city as temperatures reached 82 degrees. For Thorne and Knack, they had to spend the hot summer nights in the New York tombs, more properly known as the New York City Halls of Justice and House of Detention. Built in an Egyptian revival style to house 300 prisoners, it was, by the late 19th century, severely overcrowded and run down. For most inmates, the conditions were absolutely squalid. Augusta Knack was doing fairly well, however, housed in the women's wing, whilst Thorne was placed on murderer's row. On the 9th of July, they were both indicted, however, the proceedings were found to be faulty as the murder had taken place under the jurisdiction of Queens and so they were promptly removed and re-indicted there. Meanwhile, the police were searching for the head in the East River. With new confirmation that the thing had been encased in plaster and dumped overboard, they went all out in attempts to dredge the bottom, but they found nothing. Not even the press, who naturally went one up on the police, employing a deep-sea diver to scour the riverbed by hand, were any more lucky, and Gordon Supper's head remained a mystery. Adding insult to injury, more and more letters were still being sent to both the detectives and the press, claiming that Gordon Super was still alive, or that the case was all a matter of misidentification. In one case, a letter sent to the coroner from a wife of one of the attendants of the Murray Hill Turkish Bass claimed Gordon Super was alive and well, and in hiding in order to stitch up Thorn in revenge for stealing his mistress away. With all the circumstantial evidence that they had against the couple in detention, including the confessions, it should have been chalked up to a hoax that it more than likely was. But still, it was enough to see doubt into the detectives' minds, who knew that their case was flimsy at best. As August fell, and the Knack and Thorns' impending trial loomed, Augusta Knack took it upon herself to sell her story to the world. She had already taken to profit from her situation, charging people 25 cents a pop to come into her cell and ogle her like a zoo animal, so why not sell her story while she was at it? The piece came out with a large drawing on the front page of the paper of Mrs Knack dictating her statement to a world reporter. In the white space of the image was written what the paper called Mrs Knack's Appeal to Women. I ask those women who are happy and who have good, true husbands and pleasant families and happy homes not to judge me too harshly, for, in my opinion, no woman who is happy in her married life can ever realise what terrible temptations follow unkindness and neglect on the part of a husband, and what these temptations sometimes lend a wife to do. 
she'd apparently given the story to the reporter with a sparkle in her eye and a pleasant smile. But in reality, the story was nothing more than a gratuitous piece of self-promotion that aimed to shoulder the blame for everything onto her husband, Herman Knack, who she said had imprisoned her into a life of misery, drinking heavily and relying on her money for support. After the story hit the public on the 6th of August, Augusta Naxak's husband Herman fired back by paying a visit to the district attorney office and spilling his side of the story. Augusta was a sick woman, he said. She had failed her miswife courses in Europe and was living off the back of the lies that she had been fully trained. In the ten years prior to her arrest, she had been carrying out illegal abortions at $25 a throw, killing, at the very least, two clients in the process and burning the aborted babies in the stove of her apartment. In some cases, she stored the fetuses in pickle jars, holding up to a dozen at a time. He estimated that she was carrying out her services as many as two to three times a month, solidly over the entire period, and hinted that she had an even darker past in her time in Europe, though he left that avenue hanging as a threat that he would unleash the information should she continue to attempt to place the blame for the killing onto him, and ruin his name. For all her innocence, Mrs Knack, however, was far from an angel. At the same time as she was waxing poetic to the world, she had written a letter to Martin Thorne and paid an inmate with the freedom of the prison to smuggle it over to him in a parcel of food. Unscrupulous to the end, the prisoner took the letter to Thorne, but not before he had visited the offices of the journal to sell a copy of the note first. In it, she suggested that they begin to make plans to kill themselves, by which she meant, of course, for Thorne to kill himself while she did absolutely nothing of the sort. As soon as the journal printed the letter, a 24-hour watch was placed upon Thorne's cell, just in case. The trial of Martin Thorne took place on November the 8th. Augusta Knack had claimed innocence all along, ensuring that she had been forced into the situation by Thorne and turned state's evidence against him. So... While she waited in her cell to find out her fate, Martin Thorne was strung up in court, staring down the barrel of a death sentence from a jury who had been following the story in the papers from the outset. The first day was given to narrowing down a selection of 200 potential jurors to the dozen required, and though no member knew Thorne personally, it was only really the best that could be hoped for, and it was all but accepted that anyone in New York would have known the story inside out from the press coverage the case had gathered over the months. The biggest revelations came during the third day of trial, when Mrs Knack was called to the stand to give evidence against Thorne, throwing him under the bus in spectacular fashion, claiming that Thorne had planned and carried out everything except the luring of Gordon Super to the house and the distribution of the body parts, which she had carried out through fear of the repercussions of going against his wishes. As damaging a testimony as it was for Thorne, the entire performance was not at all convincing, as the cross-examination ended with her winding herself into a ball of contradictions and lies that became dangerously close to a farce. The day was, perhaps thankfully for Mrs Knack, ended prematurely when one of the jurors came down with a sudden bout of appendicitis, causing the entire trial to be thrown out and rescheduled with a replacement member. The second trial began on the 22nd of November, and this time Augusta Knack was not called back to the stand. On this occasion, it was how the colleagues of William Gordonsuper had been so adamant that they had identified the right man without his head that made all the fuss. It was all a matter of the victim's privates, the court heard, and Gordonsuper's penis 
was quite the memorable member. Underneath, from the head of his penis, he had a lump of skin hanging which he could stretch. I once saw him stretch it at least two and a half inches. The long nights in the Turkish baths had apparently been quite entertaining, as the men all seemed fairly familiar with Gordon Super's party trick, which the court was ensured was certainly strange and unique enough to have caught the attention of all of his colleagues. All the talk of penises was enough to cause the courtroom to fluster in the hot summer weather, and the line of questioning had to be cut short just as a doctor was offering to draw up a diagram for the jury. The day's events were thought to be so racy that women were barred entry to the courtroom for the remainder of the trial. The defence's closing statement was fairly predictable, homing in upon the abundance and over-reliance on circumstantial evidence, discrediting witnesses and pointing out that Thorne had had a perfect record before he had met Augusta Nack, never getting into trouble with the law and working hard. The prosecution impressed upon the court that Nack had motive, had been placed at the scene and, of course, drilled home the confession to John Gotter. Prosecution implored that whilst the defence may have been skilfully appealing to their hearts and minds, they must overcome their passions and utilise their common sense. When the jury filed out to debate their decision, it was 2.30pm and it took them almost three hours to return. Once the court had been reseated, the judge read out their verdict. Martin Thorne was found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to Sing Sing Prison, where he would be strapped into the electric chair and put to death. Martin Thorne was eventually given the chair after failing to secure an appeal on the 1st of August 1898. He went to his death without ever making a formal confession. In January of 1898, Mrs Knack was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for manslaughter, of which she eventually went on to serve 10, being released on July 19th, 1907. The world were, of course, first to print the story of her release. Freshly released, she attempted to sell her story to the highest bidder, except she found rather disappointingly that no one really cared anymore. She wound up working in a candy store, selling sweets to children and disappearing into obscurity. By the time the Spanish-American War rolled around in the spring of 1898, the circulation battle between the journal and the world had been costly for both papers. The war took both papers to new heights of sensationalism as both parties rushed to print their own version of propaganda and fought the war on their own fronts. By the time the real fighting was over, the world had spent somewhere in the region of $4 million in its war against the journal and both parties were quickly realising that the situation was far from sustainable. Pulitzer and Hearst eventually called a truce, agreeing to a deal that would see both papers make a healthy profit, sharing the city's readership. Although the deal was never officially put into action, over time the changes were gradually introduced all the same, and two sworn enemies slowly turned to fragile allies, equally sharing a circulation of well over half a million each. Perhaps most interestingly is the opinion of many of the editors, owners and journalists of the newspapers of the time, who, despite everything, saw the sensational journalism of the time, later to be coined yellow journalism, as raising the standards of journalism, a far cry from the race to the bottom that it was far more usually lambasted for. Proponents of the behaviours of the papers like the Journal and the World claim that their overbearing presence in so many criminal cases worked to hold the authorities accountable for their actions. Sure, they may have crossed a few lines here and there, but they told the public exactly how it was. Or, at least, they told the public 
their own versions of how it was. In the years following the Golden Super case, several often carved up and decapitated bodies were pulled out of the East River. Some were even compared directly to the events of 1897. None, however, ever managed to push the New York journalists into quite such a flurry of activity. As the circulation wars moved on, new papers came and went, and the New York press slowly amalgamated into the modern media of today. So that was William Gordon Super's murder, the story of the headless torso mystery. Um, some really interesting bits in there to talk about, actually, this time. So we're going to do that after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So that was, like I say, the story of William Gordon Super. A few things in this really caught my eye um, and, and sort of led me to, to do it as an episode for Dark Histories. And of course, that was was mainly to do with the papers that you know the murder story is really like the vehicle for the sort of stuff that was happening around the periphery and and like i say that that was really the the what was going on in the papers at the time it was just incredible like the amount of powers that the journalists had and and, and the amount of power that they exercised at, at that period it seemed like almost they just acted completely with impunity like like libel laws just apparently didn't seem to exist or at least no one seemed to get sued. I assume that a large part of that $4 million that, that um, the, the journal ended up spending was probably spent settling, I should imagine, issues outside of court because they were constantly saying things that nowadays I'm sure they would, papers would get absolutely creamed for. But not only that, the rules they lived by were just unbelievable. You get that image in old sort of cop movies and things like that, like old detective movies, of the newspapers greasing the palms of the police, you know, and, and sort of having the police in their pocket and, and, and things like that. You know, like that they would have their man who would be in working in the police somewhere and they would sort of go meet him for a coffee and, you know, give him a bit of money and and get like the Get, get the scoop on the information and stuff so you, you know like the, the, you're kind of led to believe that these newspapers have this kind of network of informants and whatnot right but this the reality of this time just takes that to a whole nother level where the police and the, the, the press were just sort of in each other's pockets really and you know you had the press doing so much of the investigation that they were both sort of like I say, like in each other's pockets. Like there, there, there was a period, like for example, when um, the world, um, or I can't know if it's the world or the, I think it was the journal actually, um, were thought to have found the head um, in the river um, when they found out that it was in, in plaster. Someone saw someone carrying um, the, the, a, a large pack, like package into the newspaper office. And so they kind of spread the rumours that, that the paper had found the head. And so the police just kind of bust into their offices and were like, right, give us the head. So the police had this power over the press like that. They could just sort of bust in and say, right, you've got evidence, we want it. But the very fact that the press would be doing that in the first place and, you know, they had the means, in, you know, they had the, the, the financial backing to be sort of doing this stuff and, and getting like key pieces of evidence and, and concealing it from the police, you know, at, at least in, for as long as they could until they could get a story out of it. So you had this kind of like back and forth where the police had sort of more powers in some areas 
but but the, the press had more powers in others where they were using their their sort of financial clout to leverage power um and it, it was i think that's really interesting that that dynamic it must have been so frustrating to be on either side i think i mean as the police it must have been incredibly frustrating to have this kind of meddling force that had like far more money than you to do your job in a way and if you you know if they did it better than you or quicker than you then you would be publicly lambasted by them as well because you know of course if they had solved the crime not only would they then make the police look stupid by saying we've solved the crime which they would do anyway even if they had solved it or not but they would also then call out the police and say you know the spectacular inactivity and all the rest of it you know so they would be like slamming the police as well so really as a policeman you were screwed in this situation the only real powers say like the police had is is that they could then bust in and say look we want the head give it to us but of course then that's going to They've they've got to balance that power in a way because in a sense you know that they've got to keep the press at least some degree on side. So yeah, you've got this interesting sort of power dynamic between the press and the police. I thought was fantastic, but and really interesting to read, but just unbelievable. Like just, I mean, I don't know how much it's changed nowadays, but you assume the press can't get away with the level that they're getting away with it then. I don't know, I suppose today you do steer stories of, of the press doing things that they shouldn't be doing and stuff, right? It's like the phone hacking scandal in England a little while back and things like that. So perhaps they do, but nowadays they just do it more under the table, whereas back then they just openly exercised their powers. Um, yeah, it's, it's, anyway, I thought I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the, of the case. Um, on, on a lighter side of it i thought it was really funny that women were barred from the courtroom because of the whole penis thing but but it was totally fine for them to have been there up to that point despite the fact that it was a man being you know a, a case of a man being carved up in a bathtub i mean if, if you've got the stomach to sit through a court trial for the man being uh carved up in a bathtub you've probably got you know you're probably old enough and ugly enough to to not be abashed at a penis it's, I mean, that's that typical Victorian sensibilities, isn't it? Sort of protect the women folk. Uh, it's sort of ridiculous, really, when you when you really think about it. But that, that's that's really just an aside. Um, so in terms of the actual case, then, like, I'm fairly sure that like Thorne went down for it and obviously got electrocuted, and Mrs. Knack kind of came out of it as the innocent party. I'm fairly sure there was no innocent parties, obviously, and Mrs. Knack wasn't the innocent party, but she came out of it. Um, you know, she claimed that she'd been sort of forced into it and that actually at one point she even claimed that she tried to put the police onto it by being really obvious. Like she claimed that the reason she bought the oil cloth under her real name was a, a cry for help, um, which is tantamount nonsense, I think. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think personally that it's kind of opposite anyway. Like I think more than likely... It was Mrs. Knack who had all the power and control over Thorne because he was sort of financially relying on her and, and financially he, he was hoping to go out and have her buy this house for $1,000 and start him up with like a business and bankroll his like new barbershop and things like this. So I think he probably was sort of, 
I, I, I don't want to say that under a spell, but I think probably he was a, a willful... Like, I'm not saying he was innocent in any way and that she was the only guilty party, but I think one of the two was the driver and the outcome was that Thorne was the driver and, and got electrocuted and, and, and Mrs. Knack just went down for manslaughter. I think it was the other way around. I think Mrs. Knack was the driver behind this. I think it was... I think it was, as his confession said, I think it was more than likely her idea. She, you know, she did all the manipulation. She, um, you know, brought Gordon Zipper to the house. She took him up to the room. All he really did was, I say all he really did was shoot him in the face and then carve him up in the bathtub. Um, I mean, that, that, that again was, um, is debated. Um, she says she left the house and left him to get on with it. Um, there, there was some argument that they don't think he could have been carved up by one person alone. To me, the evidence seems not one way or the other there, um, so I'm not really sure. But but either way, like he he definitely had his part to replay. Like he definitely wasn't innocent. You know, he was. They were both equally as guilty as one another, and they they they, they should have both gone down for it. But like I say, I think if there was a driver, then I think it was I think it was Mrs. Knack rather than. Uh, Martin Thorne I think it was Augusta Knack that was the driver I, I just got the impression through going through all of the that evidence and, and all the story uh, not not so much from the papers because like I say the papers were clearly sensational as all hell you had to like read between the lines and, and such and sort of pick the, the, the pieces of information that what the sort of facts from the fiction if you like um, but you know, after sort of looking at all the evidence and all the rest, I, I feel I just feel like she was the one that was somewhat crueler. And I feel like Thorne was, say, not innocent in the least. But I feel like he was probably going along with it all. Um, so that's that's my theory anyway. Uh, let me know if your, your theory is opposite and you think I'm completely wrong. Uh, as always, you can contact me. Uh, the email is contact.darkhistories.com. Uh, if you find me on social media, you can find links to that in the show notes as well as on the website, um, on the website, which is darkhistories.com. You'll find links to just about everything. You'll find links to the merch store, which is um, all new and fresh these days. Uh, you'll find links to all the social media. You'll find links to all the ways in which you can support the show if you would like to do so. Otherwise, that's about that. So I will leave that here. Like I say at the start, if you want to get your stories in for the Christmas campfire, please do so. Got up to, I say, like probably mid-December. Let's say like uh, 20, if you want an exact date, let's say the 20th of December will be my cutoff for that. Um, but yeah, if you can get them in by sort of mid-December, that'd be, that'd be amazing. Um, and that'd be really exciting. So until then, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. So thanks very much for listening. Take care and sleep tight.